Please take your Bibles, turn them with me to the book of Genesis chapter 30. We are in Genesis chapter 30. We've been following the life of the patriarch Jacob who has inherited God's covenant promises originally made to his grandfather Abraham. Promises that he would be blessed by God, that he would prosper and have many offspring, that he would be a great nation, that nation would inherit the land of Canaan, and that through this nation, blessing and salvation would come to the world. And the fact that God chooses Jacob for this is surprising. Let's be honest, how many of you have been impressed with Jacob so far? I I see maybe a hand or two from a couple of compassionate people, but most of you are not voting for Jacob right now. Uh, if, his, if his picture was in the yearbook next to it, he would, be, he would be seen as least likely to be the one that God would choose uh, to, to bear the promises to save the universe. Uh, Jacob has been a conniving schemer and a trickster. Uh, Jacob's been a guy who just looks out for number one, using and exploiting people for his own advantage, unconcerned about spiritual things, and yet in an act of amazing grace and kindness, God nevertheless has chosen this man to work out his redemptive plans through. God loves Jacob. God has loved Jacob as he is, but he loves him too much to leave him as he is. And so God is interested not just and using Jacob to change the world, but first in changing Jacob. And so we've seen Jacob's lying and deceit come back around on him, and as a result, he ends up exiled from the promised land, and he leaves empty-handed. He's on the run as a fugitive. He's running from Canaan to save his life and running to Padan Aram to find a wife, which begins a 20-year process of God disciplining Jacob of chiseling away the rough edges of his heart to make him into a new man. Jacob is a work in progress. Jacob's like us. And like us, Jacob requires a a going through the fire, so to speak, fires of difficulty and fires of conflict and affliction. Uh, These fires are there to help him to be what he needs to be, to, to grow into what God has called him to be. And part of the affliction that Jacob has been suffering has been His father-in-law, Laban, who's proven to be an an even bigger trickster than Jacob, and through cunning and deceit, he has manipulated Jacob into marrying both of his daughters while serving Laban for 14 years. And so Jacob the deceiver and Jacob the exploiter knows what it's like now to be deceived and exploited, and he's been learning some really hard lessons dealing with Laban and sharing a tent with two bitter wives and sinful conflict with one another, using their own children and even using Jacob as a pawn in their battle for supremacy. Really, it's an eerie replay of Jacob's past rivalry with his brother Esau. As Jacob sees the sins of his past come to fruition in his own household. But all the while, God has been faithful to Jacob through the difficulty and the pain and the conflict of those years. God's given Jacob 11 sons and one daughter. It's not quite a great nation, but it's a really good start. And what we're going to look at today is a continuation of God's kind dealings with Jacob. Yes, there continues to be conflicts and obstacles and trials and even sin, but again, Through all the difficulty comes blessing, which isn't just a lesson for Jacob then, but for us now. So with that said, let's consider what God has for us in his word this morning. Please stand with me now out of honor and reverence. 
for the reading of the precious and perfect and inerrant and holy word of our great and glorious God. We are in Genesis chapter 30, and we're going to pick up where we left off last week, starting in verse 25, and we'll read on down through the end of the chapter. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. As soon as Rachel had borne Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you, that I may go, for you know the service that I have given you. But Laban said to him, if I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages, and I'll give it. Jacob said to him, you yourself know how I have served you, and how your livestock have fared with me. For you had little before I came, but it has increased abundantly, and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turn. But now when shall I provide for my own household also? He said, what shall I give you? Jacob said, you shall not give me anything. If you will do this for me, I will again pasture your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later. When you come to look into my wages with you, everyone that is not spotted and speckled among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted stolen. Laban said, good, let it be as you have said. But that day, Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it and every lamb that was black and put them in the charge of his sons. And he set a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob, and Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks and the troughs, that is, the watering places where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks, and so the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks toward the striped and all the black in the flock of Laban. He put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs before the eyes of the flock, that they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there. So the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants, and male servants, and camels, and donkeys." Let's pray. Father, we pray your blessing upon your word. This is God's word to our ears this morning. So open our ears, open our minds, and open our hearts that we might hear what the Spirit has to say to Harbin's church this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I have a feeling that there's not too many preachers this morning preaching on this text. But um, one of the uh, challenges and advantages of uh, expository preaching and and going through a book uh, section by section is that it uh, it moves us to deal with all of God's Word. 
so that we might get the full counsel of God. So even though texts like this might be challenging for the congregation, and believe me, they're challenging for the preacher, they're still the Word of God, and we still come to God's Word with uh, eager expectation, knowing that He has something here for us. Now, there are four things in this text that we learn about God's, God's people and, and God's dealings with His people in our text. And, uh, and the first thing that we see is that God's people long for God's land. God's people long for God's land. So, last week's sermon ended in verse 24 with the birth of Joseph. And then verse 25 says, As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, Send me away that I may go to my own home in my own country. There's something about the birth of Joseph that triggers in Jacob's mind that now is the time to leave. And I suspect that it's because Jacob thinks that there's something special about Joseph. Jacob has 12 kids by four women, but only one of those women he actually wanted to marry. His heart was always with Rachel. And so Jacob always favored Joseph over his other children. We're going to see this come out, uh, come to play big time in a few chapters. Joseph is the firstborn of his true love. And so I get the sense that Jacob regards Joseph as the special offspring that through Joseph, the promises of God would move forward and the world would be blessed. And with Joseph's birth, Jacob now begins to think even more about those promises, the promises of God, especially the land promise. Now, there were surely many incentives for Jacob to leave and move on. He would have missed his family, and and certainly who wants to be working for Laban forever? I'm sure there was a lot of incentives for him to move on, but I agree with John Calvin who says, but the promise of God was the most powerful stimulant of all to excite his desire to return. And so Jacob's heart is tugging him southward to Canaan. And he longs to claim his inheritance and, 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 he, and to return to experience the fullness of all the blessings that God has for him. And so for the first time here, Jacob openly declares that the place that he has sojourned for so long is not his true home, which continues the, the biblical motif of a special place a special lamb. This motif began back in chapters 1 and 2 where in the beginning God created the heavens and the land and, and, and he places the man and the woman there and they enjoy the fullness of God's presence there. But Adam and Eve's sin led God to send them away into exile from the land, from the full enjoyment of, of the blessings of God. But with the promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob, the theme of the land comes back. Uh, as God promises to bring reconciliation between himself and, and man where redeemed sinners will dwell with him in his presence in the land once again. This is essentially what the land promise meant for God's people. And Jacob's interest in the land is a wonderfully encouraging step forward for Jacob spiritually. In his earlier years, Jacob was all about Jacob. He didn't have the things of God in his mind, but, but the difficulties and the hardships in the world that came through his own sin and the, the sins of others are reorienting his priorities uh, to a Godward direction. And dare I say it, Jacob seems to be growing up a little bit, spiritually speaking. He's still not everything he should be, but as the years of exile from the land have taken its toll, he's ready. He's ready for his true home. 
Now this longing that Jacob and, and all of the Old Testament people of God felt to experience God's blessing in a good and special and holy land, that is not a unique thing. It's something shared by God's people all across the ages because all of us were created to live in a world and a land that is much better than this one. In this present age, in this present age, we're much like Jacob. We experience the affliction and the disappointments and the sin of this world and we feel an increasing sense of exile from something better as we become increasingly dissatisfied with the things of this world. And I love how C.S. Lewis put it when he wrote that, if I find myself uh, in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. And the inspired writer of Ecclesiastes put it even better when he said that God has put eternity into man's heart. The New Testament describes Christians as exiles as aliens and strangers in this world whose true citizenship is not here but in heaven. And so the mature believer begins to, by faith, turn away from the things of this world which never truly satisfy and by faith look forward to and are driven by the good things that God has for us in the world to come. And so the Apostle Paul says things like this in in Colossians 3, 2, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Now, interestingly, Jacob's longing to return to the land, his longing for the land never waned. It actually intensified. Uh, Later on, as an old man, Jacob will find himself again in forced exile away from Canaan, and he makes his son Joseph swear to bury him in the promised land. He always wants to get back to the land. And the scriptures tell us that that longing that Jacob had was just a reflection of a deeper longing he had for something even better that he knew was coming later on. Author of Hebrews tells us that Jacob and the other patriarchs all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By the way, if you're caught up in the current political turmoil in our country, and you find yourself getting uh, angry or anxious, you, you need to saturate yourself in those verses. Seriously. Over the, oh, between now and election day and, and, and probably the day after. You need to saturate yourself in those verses. Memorize those verses. This is not, the United States of America is not your true home, y'all. Something much better is coming. And so the Bible gives good news for God's exiles. That no matter what you are going through now, No matter what pain and affliction you've experienced, it's not the end of the story. A better chapter is coming. Your longings for home will be satisfied, not after the, right after the November elections. Your your longings for home will be satisfied in the age to come. So let those promises for a better country be an anchor for your soul during this present age. Remind yourself of that every time you watch the news and get mad. Actually, maybe just stop watching the news. 
You're not, you're not really missing much, I promise. So in the meantime, as we wait, as we wait for that better land, that better country, uh, what does that mean for us in the meantime? I'm really glad you asked that. On to my next point. God's people are blessed to be a blessing. God's people are blessed to be a blessing. Laban was a cruel boss. And Jacob, <clears throat> Jacob is so ready to leave that he doesn't even care that he still doesn't have a penny to his name. He just wants to get out of Dodge. And in verse 26, he says something a bit odd. He says, give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you. That's interesting. It reminds me of Exodus 21, where you have someone who has gone into voluntary slavery, and and while he's a slave, he's given by his master a wife, and children are born, and yet the wife and the children still belong to the master. And we don't know if Jacob had some sort of formal arrangement like that with Laban, but regardless, Jacob still feels like a slave. He has to ask for permission not just to leave, but to take his family with him. And not only does Jacob feel like a slave, but guess what? Laban feels like a master. In the next chapter, we'll see this next time, in the next chapter, Laban emphatically tells Jacob that your wives and your children are mine. All you see is mine. Now, you would expect Laban to to treat Jacob a little differently because remember, Jacob is his nephew. This This is family here. Jacob came to Laban completely destitute. After 14 years of hard labor, he's still destitute. And there's no desire here on Laban's part to even help Jacob establish his own household and his own independence, which is all the more shocking when you consider the law of Moses. In Deuteronomy 15, where when the slave is paid off his debt and he goes free, God commands the master to not let him go empty-handed, but to send him out with extreme generosity. Moses says, and this is Deuteronomy 15, 14, he says to the master, when he goes out, the slave goes out, you shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your wine press, as the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. But here, Laban is treating Jacob worse than a Hebrew slave. In fact, in the next chapter, when Jacob just totally unloads on Laban, I can't wait for that part, he just lets him have it, Uh, Jacob says to Laban, if God had not been on my side, surely you would have sent me away empty-handed. Laban was not a blessing to Jacob, Laban was a curse, which is ironic, because Jacob has been nothing but blessing. For Laban, which is why in verse 27, as soon as Jacob talks about leaving, Laban immediately tries to head him off of the pass. <laughs> and he says, wait, 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 if I have found favor in your sight, that, that's by the way, that's, ex- that's an extremely polite, extremely humble form of address. Like he's really lowering himself by using that kind of language. Laban, as harsh as he is, he really knows how to turn on the charm and resort to flattery when he needs to. It's exactly what's happening now. He says, if I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. By divination. So Laban is a pagan. Next chapter, we'll see that Laban has household idols. And by the way, divination, uh, which is forbidden to God's people in the law, That's a type of superstitious magic that helps you to acquire knowledge, special knowledge. 
Laban says, I've learned by divination, which sounds very like impressive and mysterious, but really it's the equivalent of saying, I've learned by reading my horoscope today that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Now, it's hard to know when Laban opens his mouth what is true. <laughs> what, 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 what is reliable information and what's not? Laban may not have been practicing any sort of magic at all, but he's just blowing smoke. And he's just using religious spiritual talk to further impress Jacob and inflate his ego. Because, because greedy Laban is panicking at the thought of his money-making nephew leaving. And so he says in verse 28, name your wages and I'll give it. Now, that sounds like a pretty generous and enticing offer, right? Until you ask yourself, wait a minute, where have I heard this before? Does that sound familiar? When is the last time that Laban made an offer like this? Name your wages. Oh, that's back in chapter 29, right? And in the wake of Laban's generosity in chapter 29, Jacob got totally scammed. He got trapped into providing Laban free labor for 14 years. And he ended up with two wives. When he only wanted one, he got two wives for the price of two. That's how Laban operates. Now, how's that saying go? Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. It's exactly what Jacob is thinking in this moment, and he is not going down that road again. He has totally got his guard up, which you should around Laban. If Laban posts something for sale on eBay, shut off your browser, close your computer, and run far away. Have nothing to do with this man. So, so the conversation continues. Jacob said to him, you yourself know how I have served you and how your livestock have fared with me. In other words, dudes, you don't need divination to tell you what's going on. You already know this. You know exactly what's happening here. And then he says, for you had little before I came, and it has increased abundantly, and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turn. In the Hebrew, he's saying something like, wherever I have set my feet, God has blessed you. Everywhere his feet have gone, there has been blessing. Now, we continue here to see steps forward in Jacob's spiritual growth. He stands here before Laban, makes a bold witness for the Lord. Now, the old Jacob maybe would have patted himself on the back, puffed himself up to Laban, but here Jacob is clearly uh, giving God credit for everything that has happened, but God doesn't work in a, in a vacuum. Yes, it's God's doing, but Jacob confirms Laban's acknowledgement that God is blessing Laban because of Jacob. Now, now, Laban isn't experiencing the fullness of God's blessing. Laban is only getting rich. But even this material blessing should alert the reader to this ongoing theological theme of God's blessing through the offspring of Abraham. Remember the promise, through you and your offspring, the nations will be blessed. And so when, when Laban acknowledges God's blessing on him uh, through Jacob, Laban actually is speaking better than he knows. He is confirming something of that Abrahamic covenant. It is, it is happening in his own life. And this part of the story would have reminded the original audience of, Jake, uh, of Genesis, who would have been Jacob's descendants, the newly formed nation of Israel, would have reminded them why God made them into a nation in the first place. They were a nation that was meant to bless the nations. 
Indeed, right after God redeems Israel from slavery in Egypt, he tells Israel in Exodus 19, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, what's the role of a priest? The role of of the priest is to mediate the blessing of God to others. That's that's Israel's role, to mediate God's blessing to the nations. And, And this is the whole reason why God blesses anyone with his salvation. God says in Zechariah 8.13, so will I save you and you shall be a blessing. In Psalm 67, the psalmist beautifully captures this grand purpose as he leads the congregation of redeemed saints in prayer. And he says, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us. Now why? What's the purpose of God's blessing? He says, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Now, this mission continues for God's people today. Uh, Brothers and sisters, the Scriptures speak to you plainly about your identity, about who you really are. You are sons and daughters of the living God. You are the offspring of Abraham, according to Galatians 3. And God's purpose for Abraham's offspring remains the same, and that is to be the bearer of blessing to the world. Too many Christians have forgotten this mission. Too many Christians have forgotten this purpose. God didn't save you, and God didn't bless you just so you could sit and soak up the blessing for yourself. He blessed you so that you could be a blessing to the nations. Now, there are many ways that Christians should be blessing the world through our love and care for the poor and needy, through leading the way and advancing justice in the world, through providing a godly influence in the realm of business and the arts and politics. Uh, Our neighborhoods and our communities should be a better place because Christians are there. If you're persecuted for your faith and you end up in prison, even there, something of God's blessing can shine forth in your love and in your attitude. Like Jacob, everywhere our feet turn, there should be some measure of blessing that goes with us. But all those things that I just mentioned are just small little taste of blessings. Blessing small b. Just like Laban had a little taste of the blessing of God, but he missed out on the best blessing. Uh, Just like that, so we Christians, through our character and our good conduct, we may give the world a little taste of the blessing of God, uh, but those around us still may miss the very best blessing, blessing capital B, if we shut our mouths about the salvation from sins that God offers by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This is the main way that you and I are to bless the world because the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 2.9, you are, church, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. That's your purpose. That's the main way that you will be a blessing to the nations. Well, sadly for Laban, his material prosperity doesn't move him to to want to learn more about the God of Jacob. He's more interested in the blessing than the blessor. And so he just keeps pushing Jacob to stay, and he says, what shall I give you? Jacob, in verse 31, says, you shall not give me anything. Jacob has zero trust for Laban. He, He doesn't want to receive anything from Laban, lest he find himself further entangled by Laban. Jacob here is is actually like his grandfather Abraham in in Genesis 14. When the king of Sodom comes to Abraham and offers him the spoils of war, and Abraham says, no way, 
I'm not taking a single thread from you lest you say I made Abraham rich. Similarly, Jacob doesn't want to be entangled with pagan Laban. But, but he does see an opportunity here to become financially independent so that he can provide for his family. He says, Jacob says, let me pasture your flock and let me just take the odd multicolored sheep and any such sheep or goat that's born in the future, those ones will be mine. The normal looking ones will be yours, Laban. Now in the ancient Near East, when, when somebody hired themselves out to keep and manage someone's flock, the going wage was about 20%. They got to keep 20% of the flock for themselves. By the way, that's how wealth was primarily measured back then, was in animals and livestock. 20%, that's the the going rate. But in, in asking to keep just the unusual colored sheep and goats, folks, Jacob actually is setting himself up for considerably less than 20%. He's asking for those rarer animals, which this seems like an awful deal for Jacob, and a wonderful deal for greedy Laban. Hence Laban's enthusiastic response in verse 34. Good, let it be as you have said. Now, now Laban probably was more calm on the outside. You know, like when you're doing a deal and maybe you're at a yard sale or you know, you're buying a car or something and, and you think you're getting a good deal out of it and you just try to remain kind of cool and calm. Oh, okay, yeah, that, that's good, that's good. That works for me, okay, thank you very much. That's probably how Laban was. Oh, okay, all right. That, that, that sounds good. Okay, Jacob, whatever you say, let it be according to your word. But on the inside, Laban is thinking, I can't believe this. I just suckered this guy into making me richer than ever. And he'll hardly have anything. And only when Laban turns his back and walks away does he allow the mischievous smile to come across his face and probably the little villainless laugh. (laughs) But I have a sneaking suspicion that as Laban is walking away, behind his back, Jacob is smiling the same smile because he's got a plan. Jacob always has a plan. There's always an angle with Jacob. Well, as the drama unfolds, the next thing we'll see is that God is determined to bless his people in spite of themselves. God is determined to bless his people in spite of themselves. After the bargain is struck, verse 35 tells us that that same day, Laban secretly removes all of those unusual looking animals (laughs) that Jacob is supposed to get, and he puts... uh, He puts them three days away, I mean, this is a long way, three days away, and he gives them to his sons. So Laban immediately begins this working relationship by cheating. Jacob already put himself at a disadvantage by requesting the rarer kinds of animals. But now, after Laban's trickery, Jacob starts with nothing, virtually nothing. But then, in verses 37 through 42, we see that Jacob had a plan to increase the kind of sheep he's allowed to have while also increasing the strength of his animals over Laban's. And the first part of this plan is really weird, guys. Really weird. He gets these sticks and he peels them back so that some of the white is showing. So I guess the sticks have some white properties and dark properties. And he makes sure that these animals mate with these sticks in their line of sight. So what's going on here? 
Some have tried to, to give a scientific explanation that, that maybe these trees had certain toxic substances that when ingested heightened the animal's readiness to mate. But I think Old Testament scholar Bruce Walke is closer to the mark when he writes that Jacob is thinking in terms of sympathetic folk magic, as Rachel had with the mandrakes. Remember those mandrakes last week we talked about? Uh, how, how Rachel believed in the power of the mandrakes to produce fertility in her? Well, now we have Jacob relying on another superstitious scheme, another get-rich-quick scheme, which, by the way, falls in line with this belief in the ancient world that a vivid sight during mating would affect the outcome of the pregnancy. And Jacob's aim was to employ this tactic to manipulate the makeup of the flock. And I think... I think this was why Jacob so easily put himself at a disadvantage when he struck the bargain with, with, with Laban, because Jacob already had this plan up his sleeves. I like how Alan Ross puts it when he wrote that in Genesis 27, Jacob is a deceiver. In Genesis 29, Laban is a deceiver of a deceiver. And in Genesis 30, Jacob is a deceiver of a deceiver of a deceiver. It just keeps going and going and going. You know, there was this besetting weakness with all of the patriarchs, and that was in spite of all the promises that God made and the guarantees that he would make it happen. These families always had this temptation to not fully trust God to deliver and to give, and to instead give God some assistance in making his promises come true through human effort, like Abraham and Sarah introducing a second wife into the picture to help God's promise to bring forth a child, to help that promise come true. Or Isaac stooping to deception to save his own skin. Or Rebecca, who felt like she needed to assist God in making his promise come true that Jacob would get the blessing and birthright, and so she deceives her own husband into blessing Jacob. And so now here's Jacob carrying on the family tradition by resorting to superstitious techniques in his attempt to outdo Laban. Now, the amazing part here is that Jacob's efforts seem to work. Verse 39, the flocks bred in front of the sticks, and so the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. Now, the, the next thing that Jacob does, and this is more clever of Jacob, he, he engages in strategic selective breeding. So he's, he's combining science with magic. And, uh, and he's doing the selective breeding in a way uh, where the multicolored sheep and goats, the ones that would be his, are getting stronger while Laban's is getting weaker. And so while in the beginning Jacob was at a total disadvantage, verse 43 says, this is the conclusion, thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants, and male servants, and camels and donkeys. Now what's the point of all of this? Is this advice on animal husbandry techniques that you should follow <clears throat> for all of you who have flocks and herds here? Is, is, is the point that through Jacob's efforts and cleverness he obtained the blessing? Is the point, try real hard, persevere, and you, and you can do anything that you set your mind to? Is the point that maybe God really does need a little bit of assistance? Of course not. We know Jacob's folk magic was useless. Just ha having an elementary education in biology would tell you that. And scholars agree that even with his selective breeding strategy... The six years that Jacob did this would have been too short a time for Jacob to have taken over the majority of Laban's wealth. So, how did it happen 
if Jacob's efforts couldn't get him there? That's a good question. The answer is implicit in the text. Verse 43 says, the man increased greatly. Now, that could be translated as the man teamed greatly. Teamed, T-E-E-M. To to team means to spread out or fill up or expand quickly. It's the same Hebrew word that's used in chapter 28 when Jacob meets God at Bethel and God promises that Jacob shall spread abroad or shall team. God says, I'm going to do this for you, Jacob. The word also appears earlier in our chapter uh, in verse 30 where Jacob attributes Laban's riches to God's blessing And he tells him that you had little before I came, and it has increased abundantly. It has teemed. And so, in verse 43, at the end of the chapter, when Moses writes that Jacob teemed and therefore had large flocks, servants, camels, and donkeys, this ties everything back to the Bethel promise that God made. And so, the the point is that all of this teeming has nothing to do with Laban's management or Jacob's tricks. All of this is coming about because of the work of God. This is God's doing. This is God's blessing, and it's coming to Jacob. It's coming to Jacob by grace. And this blessing, remember, this blessing is coming to the most unpromising of people. Let's, let's never forget whom God is committed to blessing. Jacob, Jacob the schemer, Jacob the sinner, Jacob the self-sufficient, who as, as his fathers before him doesn't fully trust God and feels the need to help God out, acting in unbelief. You know, in my uh, early months as a Christian, maybe my first year as a Christian, I believed in the prosperity gospel. And the prosperity gospel says that if your faith is strong enough, you'll be blessed by God. And if you have unbelief and you're sinning, you won't be blessed. And the, the prosperity pundits often go to the patriarchs as evidence for their theology because the patriarchs were all blessed big time, even materially. And yet a close examination of the patriarchs completely undermines their version of prosperity theology and actually shows us a completely different kind of prosperity theology, one that I'll sign up for. The the biblical prosperity theology is that blessing comes not because of the strong faith and steadfast obedience of God's servants, but because of the steadfast love and faithfulness of God. Friends, Jacob is a believer, but he's a weak believer. He's a flawed believer. His faith is, 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 is weak. He has besetting sins, and and so far his unbelief stands out more than his belief. Jacob often is a walking contradiction. He's like us. And if the prosperity gospel that you hear peddled by slick TV preachers is true, have consistent rock-solid faith, be really good, and then you'll be blessed, if that's true, then we can kiss any chance of blessing goodbye. But the good news is that our hope for God's blessing does not finally rest on our level of trust and love for Him. The psalmist in Psalm 119 does not pray, O Lord, deal with your servant according to my faithfulness to you. That would be bad. (laughs) Instead, he prays, deal with your servant according to your steadfast love. That's how I want God to deal with me. This is exactly how God is dealing with Jacob. 
We talked a few weeks ago, remember, about God's election of Jacob, that he did not conditionally choose Jacob on the basis of what Jacob had done. He chose Jacob before he was born, before Jacob had done anything good or bad. He, God chose Jacob simply on the basis of mercy, kindness, and grace. And he entered into a covenant relationship with Jacob and promised, he, he made promises to bless him, to provide for him, to always be with him. And there's nothing that Jacob can do to change that. Now, let's be honest. Well, I'll just speak for me. I would have given up on Jacob a long time ago. I really would have. But that's not how God is. And praise God for that. Aren't you glad God's not like Nehmer? Amen. You're allowed to amen. You better amen that. You're going to be doing a lot of church discipline around here. Listen, the same God whom Jacob had to deal with is your God. And he doesn't give up on you. If you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, that means God loves you and has chosen you unconditionally. And guess what? He does not unchoose those he's chosen. Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I've come to do the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. And that is the promise of God's ultimate blessing that is extended not to the perfect, not to the, to the, to the just perfectly righteous, but to the most unprom- unpromising of people, people like Jacob and you and me. King David, who himself was a mixture of belief and unbelief, and who fell into heinous sins and suffered temporal consequences for them, this same David, nevertheless, in Psalm 23, writes, surely God's goodness and mercy shall pursue me all the days of my life. David knows he's a sinner, but he also knows that God is determined to bless his people in spite of themselves. Finally, we learn from our story that God will bless his people in the darkest of circumstances. God will bless his people in the darkest of circumstances. Remember, this this deal with Laban starts out with Laban cheating. Stacking the deck, stacking the odds totally in his favor and totally against Jacob. Outwardly, the situation looks really bad for Jacob. It looks like this is not going to end well, that Jacob will be forever destitute and forever under Laban's thumb. But the outward appearance of these circumstances, no matter how bad it looks, those appearances has absolutely no bearing whatsoever on God's ability to bless and work on behalf of his people. Genesis' original audience, those, those Israelites whose army was just a ragtag bunch of ex-slaves who were about to take on powerful Canaanite warlords, how impossible and how dark the situation seemed to be. Uh, So much so that that first generation of Israelites abandoned the mission and chickened out. And it took the next generation to have the courage to trust God and move forward. And God blessed them and gave them success, not due to their strength, not due to their military tactics, but because God is faithful. And he aimed to do for Israel everything that he promised. And this, this message continues to be the message for God's people today. God has not called you to military conquest or to face the exact kinds of things that Jacob faced. 
But he has called you to face challenges and difficulties and trials of various kinds. Some of you uh, may find yourself this morning in really bleak, seemingly impossible circumstances. Could be a whole host of things. For some of you, it might be financial challenges, and it just feels like the walls are closing in. Some of you could be a health crisis, could be relational strife. And yet Scripture is constantly reminding you that you have no reason to panic. You have no reason to resort to shady, unbiblical schemes to try to help God out like Jacob did. Despite how things appear, God promises to bless you. Not necessarily with an abundance of wealth, not necessarily with an abundance of health. He he doesn't guarantee those things. He, He doesn't guarantee to give you a plethora of sheep and oxen like he did for Jacob. And some of you are like, great, I don't want that. God hasn't promised you those things. He's actually promised you better things. He's promised better things to all of his people. Promises of protection and provision and grace to help in time of need. And promises of his presence. No matter how dark and no matter how hopeless your circumstances appear, those promises stand out like beacons in the dark. Maybe you're in a situation that appears totally bleak and confusing and you have no idea how to successfully navigate your current trial. To you, God promises the blessing of wisdom. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. Maybe you're in despair right now because of something dark and difficult that you are facing. Or maybe something that you know is going to happen tomorrow or or something you're facing this week. To you, God promises that no matter what it is, it will not prevent his blessing of help and mercy from coming to you. The prophet Jeremiah, who was in the darkest moments of Israel's history, the siege of Jerusalem, nevertheless wrote that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Or maybe, maybe you feel like you're in an impossible situation because you're weak. And it just seems like the odds, the the odds are stacked up against you. God nevertheless promises to bless you and to give you everything you need in that circumstance. He says in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. You see, with God, there's no such thing as odds. We talk about stacking the odds against this or that. There's no such thing with odds, with God. God is sovereign. He does whatever he pleases. And therefore, nothing can stop him from blessing his people and keeping every single promise to them. And the dark and difficult circumstances that you're facing right now does not mean that God is not blessing you. As a matter of fact, very often, dark and difficult circumstances become the very means by which His blessings come. God blessed Jacob and restored to him all that Jacob stole from him and much more. But how did it happen? It didn't come easy. Right? We, read, we read verse 43 that, that, you know, he's just teeming with all this stuff, and we're thinking, boom, just, you know, God snapped his fingers, and it, and it all happened in, in five seconds. But we'll find out in chapter 31 that this blessing 
came through six years of hardship, a six-year trial, uh, six years of brutal working conditions under Laban, who kept changing the terms of the contract over and over again, who treated him as worse than a slave. Ever had a job you hated? Ever had an impossible boss? And you just dreaded going to work. And, and your whole, your job just cast a dark shadow over your entire life. And it just seemed like there was no way out. Multiply that by 10,000 and that's Jacob for six years. But we learn in verse 43, God was working. And, and he used those six years both to multiply Jacob's wealth and to further shape his character. Jacob's blessing was not eclipsed by the affliction, it instead came through the affliction. It's an important biblical principle. And it should give you and me great hope because even the difficulty you experience will become a means by which God's blessings will come. This does not mean that we're just happy clappy through our troubles. (laughs) Yes, you know. We, we hurt, we mourn, we lament, we grieve, we feel pain and sorrow, and we cry out to God for relief. But all the while, we have hope, because we know God never gives up on or abandons His people. And we know that, we know that like stories like this and others in the Bible, we know that we cannot judge by outward appearances, just the appearances of our circumstances. We must instead believe by faith that even now, God is giving us grace. Even now, even in your situation, God is blessing you and working on your behalf. If you are his child, that is true. It's the whole point of Paul's encouragement in Romans 8, 28, when he tells you that all things work together for the good of his people. He works all things together. Uh, Even the darkest of circumstances, that's how it works for all of God's people, even Christ. The son of Jacob, the son of God, came from heaven to earth as a man, showed us the way to God, and who, unlike Jacob and unlike us, was perfectly innocent, and yet treated harshly and unfairly by his enemies. And he ends up in a situation that if you were to just judge it based on outward circumstances, the appearance of the circumstance with human wisdom, there is no, there is no circumstance darker than what he endured. Can't, can't come even close to thinking anything darker than that. He was betrayed, beaten, murdered, strung up on a cross, executed like a criminal. There's no situation worse than that. Does not seem at all like God is bringing blessing. Seems like a curse. And yet, through that dark and horrible sorrow and affliction came blessing. Because Jesus died not for his own sins, but for the sins of his people. Jesus was cursed, not for his sake, but for ours. He experienced exile from heaven and exile from the presence of God. And he did it. Why did he do it? He did it for the joy, for the blessing, for the blessing that was set before him. The blessing of, through his suffering, bringing many sons to glory. For whoever now receives Jesus as their sin-bearing substitute, will escape the curse of death and experience the blessing of forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God and the promise that one day our own exile will end. Like Jesus, we will be raised from the dead and will finally be at home with our God. If you're not a Christian and not received the forgiveness of sins through Christ, 
I urge you to place your hope and your trust in him today to turn from your sins and to follow him. And if you do, if you are doing that, or if that's something you want to know more about, love, love, love to talk with you more about that after the service. And in fact, any Christian here would be happy to discuss that with you. If you're a Christian already, be encouraged. As with Jacob, God's promises and his blessings to you do not ultimately hinge on the strength of your faith and your obedience, but on the strength of his love for you and his faithfulness to keep every single covenant promise he has made to you. In spite of your circumstances, in spite of yourself, he will see it done because it's not about you, it's about him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Thank you so much for your great faithfulness and love. And thank you that as we learn about your dealings with Jacob, we are learning something about your dealings with us. That you are kind and you are compassionate and you are merciful and even in the darkest moments, even in our own sin, you do not let us go. You hold us close to you and you continue to fulfill your promises, and you continue to bless. Father, we do pray that you would increase our faith this morning so that we might put our hope in your faithfulness, and that as we hope in that, that that would spur us on to greater faithfulness and greater growth in the things of God, and and that we would perceive the lessons that you're teaching us like what you're teaching what you've been teaching Jacob in our in our text today and the previous chapters but father above all else let us plant the flag of our hope solidly in you and in the gospel and as we do remind us to not keep that blessing to ourselves remind us that we have been blessed to be a blessing So as we leave this place today, as we scatter into the workplace, to our neighborhoods, wherever it may be, remind us that we are to be bearers of the blessing that others might experience your kindness and grace just as we have. In Jesus' name, amen.